Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. To Boston, Bloomberg 1200. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. It is 730 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keene. Some news here. Freeport McMoran. Uh, they're trying to pay down debt, so they're going to sell off a copper mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the buyer China molybdenum. $2.6 billion is the uh, price tag. Lending Club announced this morning that the founder of the company and the CEO, Renaud Laplanche, resigned. Internal review of loan sales to a single investor apparently did not turn out well. President Scott Sanborn is going to be the acting CEO. And HCP is going to spin off its HCR Manicure portfolio of skilled nursing and assisted living assets. Going to make it a publicly traded REIT. It will own more than 320 properties, earning an annual rent of $485 million, the company says. HCP is going to focus on high-growth health care going forward. Let's check in with Michael Barr now. Get the latest world and national headlines. Mike, thank you very much. Today is the deadline set by the U.S. Justice Department for North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory to declare he will not try to enforce a new law limiting protections for LGBT people. McCrory says it is common-sense legislation and accused Washington of being a bully. His stance could risk federal funding and lead to a federal lawsuit. Fire officials in Alberta, Canada, are hoping that cooler temperatures and light rain forecast for the next few days will help them get the upper hand on a raging wildfire that has burned almost 400,000 acres. Much of the town of Fort McMurray has been blackened. Chad Morrison is with Alberta Wildlife. Our first priority is human life and communities, and uh, we're going to always put our air tankers and our firefighters uh, there to protect that as our first priority. Meanwhile, a member of Parliament who has toured Fort McMurray says the town's hospital, schools, and treatment plant are still functioning. Treasury Secretary Jacob Lew travels to Puerto Rico today as part of the Obama administration's campaign to pressure Congress to come up with a solution for the U.S. territory's debt crisis. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Mike Lubar. Mike? Thank you very much. Time now for the Land Rover Parsippany Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. Here's John Stasha. Thanks, Mike. After getting swept last weekend in Boston, the Yankees were hoping to turn the tables at the stadium but unable to complete the sweep last night, losing 5-1. to one. Every run on a home run, two solo shots by David Ortiz, Dustin Pedroia, two-run shot before the first out of the night. The only Yankee run, a ninth-inning homer by Brett Gardner. Stephen Wright, complete game, 300 for Boston, while Luis Severino lost again, is now 0-5. Yanks and Royals tonight, Araldis Chapman can make his debut. His 30-game suspension has ended. Mets are in L.A. after two losses in San Diego. They came back and salvaged a split, winning 4-3. to three. Another homer for Ioannis Cespedes is 11th. He leads the league in RBIs. Matt Harvey, 10 strikeouts for the win. That's it for the Islanders, a season that had their first playoff series win in 23 years. They took game one at Tampa Bay, but they lost the next four games. The Lightning ended the Isles season yesterday, 4 to nothing. Tampa Bay back in the East Finals, where last year they took out the Rangers. Cleveland has reached the NBA's East Finals, still without a postseason loss this year, 100-99 to in Atlanta. 41 points for Kevin Durant last night. Oklahoma City pulled away from San Antonio, 111-97, tying that series at 2. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stanchaler. Thank you, John. This in uh, just a moment ago, the Tribune Publishing Company doesn't want Gannett to 
continue their efforts to buy the company. They've adopted a shareholder rights plan, would issue more stock if somebody gets 20% of uh, the stock. So uh, we'll see how that plays out this morning. Tribune trying to fend off Gannett. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee. We are seeing shares higher this morning. S&P futures up six. Dow futures up 47. The stock 600 is four points higher in Europe today. So a sort of global rally underway the first trading day after the jobs report. Time now for the Bloomberg NJIT STEM report brought to you by New Jersey Institute of Technology, investing more than $110 million a year in applied research to solve problems and improve life. Learn more at storiesofinnovation.njit.edu. Here's Bob Moon. Michael, thank you very much. Here's what's happening in science, technology, engineering, and math. Twitter has cut off U.S. intelligence agencies from using a key analytics service for surveillance. The Wall Street Journal reports Twitter partner Dataminer sifts through public tweets to sell information in newsrooms and government agencies. The Journal reports Twitter's been providing information to U.S. intelligence agencies for two years, but has never been authorized to do so for surveillance purposes. Seismic surveying has been compared to hearing dynamite explode or standing next to a jet engine. It involves blasting the ocean floor with sound waves that bounce off the seabed and are recorded by ships, and it's extremely useful in finding deposits of oil and natural gas. But there is concern it can be harmful to marine life, including endangered whales, turtles, and dolphins. Now two U.S. senators and environmental groups from around the country are trying to ban the practice in the Atlantic Ocean. And an academic economist was removed from an American Airlines flight from Philadelphia to Syracuse last week after a seatmate on the flight grew suspicious about the code he was scribbling into a notebook that looked to her like foreign lettering. The Washington Post reports... An Italian economist from the University of Pennsylvania, Guido Menzio, was working on some differential equations for a model on menu costs and price dispersion. Security personnel determined Menzio was not a credible threat. That's this morning's Bloomberg NJIT STEM report. Uh, yeah, and it was also true that he looked foreign. He's Italian. Oh, yeah. So um, what, you have the to world wonder. has gotten very, very strange. Bob Moon, <laughs> thank you very much. All right, it is the argument of the moment. Do you fight the Fed or not? The bond market seems to think Fed is not credible when Fed officials say they are in line to raise rates in June if the economy continues on its current path. Ian Shepardson is the founder and chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. And, Ian, uh, it's kind of fascinating to me because the old rule was don't fight the Fed. But now the uh, the folks on trading desks seem to be saying, uh, don't fight the bond market. The Fed doesn't know what it's talking about. Yeah, I got some sympathy with both of them, actually. Uh, part of the problem here, of course, is that the Fed is pretty split itself. You know, we have some fairly well-known consistent hawks, and we've got some fairly well-known consistent doves, and then we got the waverers in the middle um, who got a lot of media attention, and some of whom really like to talk to the media a lot. So we're getting an awful lot of what appear to be conflicting signals coming out of the Fed uh, all at the same time. And so the market says, okay, we're just going to choose not to listen to this. Uh, we're going to listen to the short-term data, which so far this year have been pretty weak. Uh, and decide the Fed's not going to do anything. And until there's a real sea change in that data, which I think is coming but hasn't happened yet, uh, then I think we get you know, this continued uh, noise from the Fed is effectively being ignored by markets who just choose to go the, their own way. Well, what's your view? Which camp would you fall into? 
Well, I think I probably put myself in the consistent or hawkish camp at the moment because I don't believe the economy slowed as much as the GDP data showed in the first quarter. I think the data are very flawed. We've got a very persistent seasonal adjustment problem, tends to depress the first quarter, and then we get a much better Q2, and we're going to get that this year again. I think the labor data really are telling uh, much more of the truth. And what's going on there is that the payroll numbers are still pretty strong. I know Friday's number wasn't great, but it wasn't bad either. Uh, and the wage numbers are accelerating. Now, 2.5% wage growth is not exciting, but when there's very little productivity growth, as we've had for the last few years, actually 2.5% wage growth uh, is beginning to emerge as something of a threat to the Fed's inflation target. So I think that they should be thinking about moving in June. I don't think they will, but I think they're just going to get a bit further behind every meeting they choose to pass. Well, one of the things that pretty much all of them have said is, uh, we could move in June. It's a live meeting, but we may be deterred by the possibility of the Brexit vote. If the polls suggest it's a close vote, we may want to wait. Uh, do you see that? Uh, I think they're right to do that, actually, if the polls are very close as the, the referendum approaches, because unfortunately, a Brexit vote has the potential to, to blow up the whole of Europe's political structures uh, effectively overnight. Um, and that's an enormous risk, and it's eight days after the June meeting. So although I just said that on economic grounds, I think the Fed should be hiking and should have hiked further already, I think probably if I were in their shoes, um, I'd, I'd probably take a pass in June, unless the polls are, are clearly showing that the UK will vote to, to remain, because the unknowns here are just enormous, uh, and the risk of a gigantic market reaction just cannot be ruled out. Uh, and so you know, given that the wage numbers are at 25 and not 35 or 4 um, probably waiting a couple of months afterwards, uh, it would be a safer option. Ian Shepherdson is with us from Pantheon Macroeconomics. We'll continue our conversation with him and talk uh, more about what's going on in the U.S. and also Europe and uh, get maybe his views on the uh, Premier League. Um, you know, you sort of have to ask everybody who's British these days what they think. It's, just, you know, it's, obligatory. It's, it's obligatory, isn't it? Uh, right now, we're looking at a bond market, as I said, that isn't really in tune with the Fed. 1.76% uh, is your 10-year note yield. That's down a basis point. Five-year, 1.21, down two basis points. And two-year is at 72 basis points. That's also a basis point lower. The curve has moved lower after the jobs report, 160,000 jobs. As the market seems to ignore the idea that uh, we might be seeing some wage inflation. The interesting thing, though, is the folks who trade currencies feel the opposite. The dollar index is higher by two-tenths of a percent today. And futures in the equity markets are higher, with S&P futures up six points, three-tenths of a percent. And Dow futures up 47. That's a three-tenths gain as well. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer RIA that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. 
And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 85 years. Learn more at ADR.org. Tribune Publishing's board adopting a limited-duration shareholder rights plan to thwart Gannett's unsolicited $815 million offer. Tyson Foods, the largest U.S. meat producer, raising its full-year profit forecast after a decline in the cost of feed. And animals boosted margins. It's up 4.1% in early trading. Lending Club is down 28%. Founder and Chief Executive Renaud Laplanche resigned after an internal review of loan sales to a single investor. And President Scott Sanborn was named acting CEO. U.S. stock index futures are higher. S&P E-mini futures up 5 points. Dow E-mini futures up 41. NASDAQ E-mini futures up 12. The DAX in Germany is up 1.9%. Ten-year Treasury up 3.30 seconds. The yield 1.7%. 6% yield on the two-year, 0.72%. NYMEX crude oil up nine-tenths percent or 40 cents to 45.06 a barrel. COMEX gold down 1.4% or $18.30 to 12.75.70 an ounce. The euro $1.1383, the yen 108.27. That's a Bloomberg business flash. Tom and Mike. Uh, very good, Karen. Uh, thank you uh, so much. Ian Shepardson with us from Pantheon. It's wonderful to have him on. Because when he was a child, if he didn't do his microeconomics, his parents would say, Ian, if you don't do your micro, you're going to the Castle Keep or the Black Gate. We will chain you to the Black Gate of Newcastle, 276 miles dead north of London, 276 miles closer to Scotland than London, I would suggest. Ian, it's wonderful to talk to you about Brexit. How does Brexit play 276 miles away from the elites in London? Well, what you've got to remember about the northeast of England is that it's the only part of Britain that runs a trade surplus. Uh, and the big reason why it runs a trade surplus is that there is an enormous Nissan motor manufacturing plant uh, located just uh, in the middle of our region near the town of Sunderland. And um, uh, as a result, we're quite keen uh, in this region uh, staying in the EU because that's where most of those vehicles go. Uh, and you know, looking from outside, um, from outside London, things look very different. Uh, EU uh, industrial policy, uh, the access to the single market has been hugely important uh, for the northeast right. of England. So I think we'll be voting to stay in. Color away from the media simplicity, and we're guilty of that in the United States with Mr. Sanders and Mr. Trump. The impact of elites in the many other regions and characters of the United Kingdom. I get the idea the elites are at 10 Downing Street and 17 other fancy restaurants in West London. Are the elites dominant in the rest of the United Kingdom? Uh, no, it's very different. What tends to happen in, in, in the far-flung bits of the country is that it's dominated by local politics rather than the, yeah. the, the national scene. So uh, in the Northeast, there's always been a stronghold of the Labour Party, still is after the elections uh, last week. Um, and uh, the, the local politicians in the Northeast are very keen on remaining uh, in the EU. But we also have lots of our own problems because we're, we're, you know, the regions are constantly at loggerheads with London, which sucks in all the resources and all the talent and um, distorts the overall picture mm. of the economy. So, you know, it, it's, it's very similar, I suppose, to the, the impact that the major cities have in the U.S., uh, how you know, New York State, upstate, is very different to New York City. Well, it's kind of the same between the north and south of England. We were talking just before the break about uh, the Fed maybe wanting to be on hold to measure the impact of the Brexit vote. What would, in your view, be 
the result should the British vote to leave? Uh, well, how, how would it affect the rest of the world? Yeah, it, well, it would depend on a, a number of factors which at the moment are completely unknowable. The, the first is what happens in the UK uh, after a vote because chances are that only the southeast of England will, will vote to leave. Scotland will vote to stay in, Northern Ireland will vote to stay in, the north of England will, the west of England will, Wales will vote to stay in. So we'll have one part of the country dictating policy to everywhere else, which is going to trigger, I think, another referendum for Scotland. Um, Scotland, if it then becomes independent, and I think it would, would then want to be in the EU, but that raises all sorts of problems for other countries in the EU which have their own secessionist areas like Spain with, with Catalonia, uh, possibly Italy as well. So it causes enormous problems for the rest of the EU, uh, which already is has suffered a huge uh, resurgence of the, the right-wing nationalists, um, kind of the European Trumpians, if you like. And, um, and European politics are very fractured and very febrile at the moment, and a, and a UK vote to leave is going to make all of those problems much, much worse, uh, both immediately and, and in the medium term. And I think the reason why this, this frightens the US so much, and it clearly frightened uh, President Obama enough to make a trip to London to beg us all to vote to stay in, is the threat that this potentially poses to NATO and the other European security structures. And I think one of the questions that British people need to ask themselves when they decide how to vote is, what does Vladimir Putin want? I'll tell you what he wants. He wants us to leave. And that's probably the best single reason I can think of to vote to stay, uh, because he knows perfectly well that uh, the breakup of the EU um, uh, is a, an existential threat to NATO as well, uh, and that's a terrifying prospect. And, and I, I think it's not widely appreciated here that it's not just about economics when we choose how to vote. What's uh, we we are told over and over again? We saw this with Scotland that the polls are not uh, not very accurate. What, what's the economic reason for leaving, and how is that selling? Well, there really isn't a very strong case for leaving. The idea is that we will negotiate wonderful trade deals with everybody else, unfettered by the rules that we have to stick to as part of the EU. Uh, that everyone else will beat a path to our door, uh, and they'll do great deals with us. Uh, that's essentially it. That, that's the economic case for leaving. Uh, only um, it doesn't really make sense. Uh, you know, the, the European Union um, you know, as a whole runs um, a surplus with the UK, but seven European countries run deficits, and I don't think they're going to be very keen to do a deal with us, which has to be unanimous. The US, well, uh, Obama said a couple of weeks ago that we'd be at the back of the line for trade deals, and of course we would because they have to pass Congress, which isn't very yeah. friendly towards trade deals right now. So I think the case for leaving um, is, a, is a lot of nationalist flag-waving and not much economic sense. And that is separate from our economics. If we have quote-unquote nationalist flag-waving, whether it's in the United Kingdom or the United States, I'm going to suggest, uh, Mr. Shepherdson, it's the, it's the outcome of tepid nominal GDP, tep, tepid economic growth and prospects. What is the level of economic growth that will get America back on an even keel? Well, we've got to get out of this two and into three. That's what we have Thank to do. You. Um, how do we get there? Well, uh, we need to see a recovery in capital spending, which would support then uh, stronger income growth, faster productivity growth, and rising living standards. And, and that's really been missing. It's been particularly acutely missing over the last year or so because we've seen a gigantic collapse in capital spending in the oil business. Outside the oil business, it's holding up okay, but we need to do better than okay. Uh, and one of the great debates that, that we're having now uh, among economists is whether higher interest rates might actually make that situation better rather than worse because, of course, a standard textbook would tell you if you raise rates, you're going to depress capital spending. But what if by raising rates we put a more sensible price on capital, money's no longer free? So 
um, businesses have to think harder about how they allocate it. They have to stop doing crazy things like digging oil wells, which don't produce anything, which we did for several years. Uh, they have to make much more hard-nosed decisions, and maybe we get better decisions. We, we, uh, we, we change the environment by putting a price on capital, by putting interest rates at something like a normal sort of level and take away one of these enormous distortions. The problem is that nobody knows if this is true or not. It might be, but the only way you find out is by actually doing it. Of course, the other strand to that argument is that by raising rates, the Fed will be signaling to everybody, businesses, individuals, everybody, that the economy is, is in better shape and normalizing. Uh, and maybe that spurs spending as well. Because right now what we get is a constant wall of Fed officials saying things are terrible, we've got to be cautious, too risky, can't raise rates. Well, you know, if you're hearing that all right. the time from the central bank, how do you respond? Well, you don't take risk, you don't spend money, you don't invest, and that's what's happening. What do you see with the American consumer? I mean, you talk about don't spend money. Mike, did you see any 80% off signs on the way to work this morning? No. I'm seeing uh, many 50% <laughs> off. I mean, what's the state of the consumer if I'm seeing 50% everywhere? Well, overall, it's okay. I mean, consumer sentiment is hanging in there. What's happened over the last year or so is that people have chosen so far not to spend all the windfall from falling gas prices. Spent some of it, but not all of it. Um, that's not hugely unusual. When you get such a gigantic shift in energy prices, it does take a while for people to realize that actually it's probably going to be sustained for some time, and so it's safe to spend it. And um, I think we're, we're seeing that now because we're seeing things like rising mortgage applications, which is a sign that people are willing to make financial commitments. Maybe they're using some of that cash flow to increase the size of their mortgage, to put an addition on the house, something like that. Those aren't the sort of decisions that you make overnight. Gas prices fall for a month. You don't make that decision. But if they fall for 18 months, it's a different story. So I wonder whether over the next year or so, mm. we might see that saving rate come back down again. It's gone up, clearly. Yeah. But if it comes back down again, we'll see stronger consumption. And if we add into that mix um, stronger CapEx, because finally the oil, the oil sector capital spending numbers, they're hitting bottom now. They can't go any lower. Um, so we're going to lose that drag. We gain something from the consumer. Uh, and also we gain something from the weaker dollar, which is already lifting export orders. We can see that in the surveys. Mm -hmm. Put it all together, maybe that gets us nearer to three than two. And that really does transform what's happening to living standards, if we can sustain that. Ian Shepherdson, thank you so much. On American, on UK economics, and on his, Newcastle, he is with Pantheon. Yeah, uh, Newcastle and Sunderland are the two teams in his area, and <coughs> they didn't have a very good season no. in the Premier League. No. They're, they're going to be playing in the Champions League. Uh, oh, they get is that relegated? That's called. They're in relegation. Okay. Do, do yeah. Fed governors or presidents get relegated? Look at the speech calendar this week. Yeah. Oh, Dudley, yeah. Mester, Rosengren, George Williams. Which one matters, Michael McKee? Uh, Dudley, uh, obviously. In Zurich. Uh, the others, a lot of them, leaning towards a June move. From New York, Bloomberg surveillance.